My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's so good to be together with all of you and to have a time where we experience God's presence. I hope you felt God's presence this morning in the worship time. Uh, it's sweet and tender presence. Uh, this is the last week in this series that we have been in called Life Beyond Belief. Uh, we're looking at how to move beyond our mere believism, which is where a lot of people's Christianity stops. You believe a certain set of things. We want to move beyond that and move into the reality of the kingdom because that's really what it's all about. And so we've been, of course, out of the book of Luke, been looking at some of the passages, studying Luke chapter 11 and the first part of 12, and looking at various obstacles that keep us from moving into the kingdom. Last week, for those of you who are here, uh, you might recall that it was a rather strong message. It was a confrontational message. We need that once in a while. It was... Um, a conviction sort of message it was the kind of message where I preface it by saying that I'm inviting others in on my misery because whatever you're experiencing in the service, I've been experiencing all week. And so I ain't feeling sorry for nobody. Uh, but it was, it was a strong message and it seemed to really land in a somber kind of way. It really landed. On Mondays, I always meet with a team of people who assess how it went the day before and then we look forward to how it should go this week. And we look at the text and meditate on the text that we are preaching out of and, and ask the question, God, what do you want for our congregation? I had this week to really to do anything I wanted to do, uh, just as long as it wrapped up this series on life beyond belief. And so in speaking with this team and kind of feeling like we're supposed to pay attention to this word that we got last week that was so relevant to Woodland Hills Church, it really is relevant to the whole Western church. But we wanted to pay attention to that. There's something there. And so I and the team both felt that we're supposed to go back to that same passage of Scripture, at least part of it, and um, get really to the foundation of what we were talking about last week. I believe that what I'm going to speak on here in the next 40 minutes is um, as foundational as anything could be. It is, I believe, the number one obstacle that keeps Western Christians in particular from moving into the kingdom life. Number one obstacle, and it's foundational to everything that we're about. Uh, so I'm going to be preaching out of Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. I'm entitling this message, Taking Out the Trash. Because as we'll see, it's all about taking out the trash of our life instead of being trash. But I want to start with a word of prayer. If you'd join me, I'd appreciate it. Father, I, I thank you for every person who is in this auditorium and every person who is listening through the internet and podcasts and everybody who's listening and watching through cable. Uh, God, I just pray that you'd open all of our ears and all of our eyes and all of our minds and all of our hearts to receive your word. Help us to lower our defense mechanisms. That's, that's so good at justifying ourselves. Help us to be confronted when we need to be confronted. Help, help us, Lord, to have our minds changed if our minds need to be changed. Most importantly, Lord, give this word your authority to ride into our lives and make our lives kingdom lives. Help me to stay present in your presence as this word goes forward. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. 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 Okay, let's, let's get to the word. TNIV version, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Meanwhile, Luke says, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And we saw last week, and by the way, if you didn't get last week's message, I want to encourage you to download it. 
Uh, and, and listen to that. It's, it, it's a, we're supposed to pay attention to that word. What we saw last week was that Jesus is saying here, in, in essence, be vigilant on guarding against all, any hint of hypocrisy. Yeast just refers to, it's a metaphor for any little thing which once you let it on the inside, it's working to take over the whole system. Hypocrisy is like that. You let a little bit of hypocrisy in your life and, and before you know it, you're living a hypocritical life. Uh, hypocrisy is simply it means duality. It's, it's whenever there's any uh, discrepancy between how things look and how things really are. When our words and maybe our appearances don't match up with what is real, to that degree, we're living in hypocrisy. And Jesus says, take caution, be on your guard against that, any hint of it. And here's why. There is nothing concealed that will not, on the day of judgment, be disclosed, or hidden that will not, on the day of judgment, be made known. What, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms, what you've whispered, will be proclaimed from the roofs. The reason why you want to avoid and be cautious against any hint of hypocrisy is because it will never last. There's coming a time of truth. The judgment that Jesus is talking about, and this is the theme we saw last week runs throughout the New Testament, the judgment is simply a time where the light of truth is turned on and things are seen for what they really are. All appearances and discrepancies are burned away. Your words count for nothing. Your appearances count for nothing. Only reality counts on the day of judgment. All hypocrisy will be exposed. And so Jesus is saying, get it out of your life now so it doesn't have to be exposed later on. And then Jesus says this, I tell you my friends, and I'm telling you because you are my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. He's referring to God here. Hell, we saw last week, is, is, the word is Gehenna in Greek, and it refers to the dump outside of Jerusalem. And all the sewage and all the waste was thrown into Gehenna, and even the, the bodies of, of, of criminals who didn't deserve to be buried were, were thrown into Gehenna. It was a filthy, uh, disgusting place. And it became a metaphor in Jesus' day for what happens to everything that's not in the end on the judgment day consistent with the character and will of God. If it's not good for the kingdom, well, it's only good to be thrown out into the dump. And on the judgment, Jesus is saying, when the light of truth is turned on, it will answer the all-important question, what is real, and therefore, where do things belong, really? Apart from all words and all appearances and all religiosity, what is real and where does it belong? And ultimately, ultimately with regard to people, you belong in one of two places. You're either fit for the kingdom because you're, you really are consistent with the character of the king or you're not fit for the kingdom, in which case you've got to be thrown out of the kingdom city and thrown into the metaphorical dump. When God reigns over all as he shall someday and his love defines every square inch of the cosmos, you're either compatible with that or you're not. And if you're not compatible, then you're consigned to the garbage heap. Uh, when things are broken, we throw them away. And that's kind of what is going on here. Uh, if if uh, humans don't uh, de develop into the, the kind of beings that God created them to develop in, then they're thrown into the garbage heap. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, the, the Great Divorce, 
or maybe it's the problem of pain, I can't remember right now, but he says what's thrown into hell and the Gehenna really isn't humanity. It's they're not really human beings. It's the refuse, the remains of what was supposed to be a human being but didn't turn out. Uh, it's a garbage dump. And so Jesus is saying, be on your guard, vigilant guard against, against the, the yeast of the Pharisees because uh, it, it, it can turn you into trash. And trash gets thrown out into Gehenna. Take care against that. Don't fear what people can do, Jesus is saying. And he's talking to people who are going to be tortured and killed. He says, don't fear that because God loves you and, and he, you know, you're worth more than many sparrows and he, the, the, the hairs on your head are numbered. So, so yeah, you're going to get tortured and killed, but don't sweat that. God, God loves you. He's, he'll take care of that. What you need to be worried about when you're delivered up to rulers and authorities and you're facing torture and death is not becoming a hypocrite. Live authentically. Uh, because dying is a temporary thing. It's no big deal from an eternal perspective. But, but becoming duplicitous, becoming a hypocrite, getting the yeast of the Pharisees inside of you, that can make trash out of your life. And trash has no place in the kingdom. Become a person who is fit for the kingdom, not Gehenna. But to do that, you've got to be on your vigilant guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, I, I got a question last week um, that I, I appreciated a great deal. I'm not surprised by the question at all. I talked to the person about it. And um, uh, given the, the state of, of so much of American Christianity, it was a question to be expected. And it kind of went like this. Look, I believe in Jesus, and therefore God doesn't see my sins, so why would I get so bent out of shape about hypocrisy? Uh, I've got my fire insurance. Why are you warning me about fire and Gehenna if I've already got my insurance? And I see, I think that question uh, brings us to the number one obstacle in America, at least, and maybe more broadly, the Western church in general, the number one obstacle to moving beyond mere believism into the reality of the kingdom. And it has to do with something so foundational. It has to do with our concept of salvation. Probably the most fundamental theological thing uh, you can imagine. I believe there is so much misunderstanding of this concept, and I want to address this. And some of what I'm going to be saying will be new to some folks, and I just encourage you to keep an open mind and let, the, and let God confirm and the Word confirm uh, what I'm saying. Just, just, just put your defense mechanisms down. I can get at the problem by showing a more extreme example. Um, a number of years ago, I was traveling on a uh, freeway going someplace or other, and I stopped at a truck diner and, to get a bite to eat. So I go up to the deli bar, and I'm sitting down to eat, and the guy next to me turns out to be a real yapper. He starts talking my ear off. And he starts bragging a lot. I mean, really over-bragging. He starts with his truck. He's got this really hot truck out there, and he bought it himself. It's all paid for, and he makes me look at the truck. So yeah, the truck starts telling me about, you know, all the engine, and, and like, I know anything about engines. Yeah, it's got four on the floor, ship, ship, it's got a spark plug and everything else, you know. So I was like, oh, that's really impressive. It's, it's shiny, got a lot of wheels, I noticed that. I don't know anything about cars. And then he starts bragging about his life. He's got, in Virginia, where he comes from, uh, he's got two girls that live with him, and uh, they're okay with that. It's really, you know, a real sweet deal. Uh, they're, they're okay with that. So he's got two girls. And, woo. But not only that, but wherever he travels, he's got three major cities he's got to, you know, do on his truck routes, and in every one of those cities, he's got another girl. 
And he just calls her up, and they spend the night, and he, he, he's getting it every which way, and he's, he's loving it. And, and the, the two girls, of course, back home don't know about it. None of these girls know about the other girls, but, but this guy's got a sweet deal, and he's bragging to me about all this. In fact, the night before, he's telling me, the night before, man, he had the party because his girlfriend has got connections, you know, in this town. And, and so they were doing lines of cocaine, and they got so high and had the best sex of their life, and he's just going on and on about it. And I'm just kind of like, really? That's interesting. Uh, really? <laughs> Lucky you, lucky you. Well, then, then, the guy, then the guy, finally, he ran out of things to brag about, so he asked me, uh, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I said, I'm the man of God in the house. Hallelujah. <laughs> I did not do that. But see, at this point, I was in seminary. I was a grad student, so I said, well, I, I, I'm actually a, uh, in seminary, and I, I do uh, on the side pastor a church. Uh, and um, his demeanor changed a little bit there. But in a way that was a little bit surprising because I mean, he, he got a religious twang to him all of a sudden. Yeah, it's funny. It's like he, he got this twang uh, going. But he goes, he, pa- he pats me on the back. He goes, brother, I, I, I'm a brother in Christ. Hallelujah, I'm a brother in Christ. Uh, I know Jesus. I go, that's when I went, really? Uh, he says, yeah, you know, I know that I'm a carnal Christian. I'm one of these carnal Christians. First time I had ever heard that term. Uh, he goes, uh, Jesus is my Savior, but not my Lord. Uh, maybe someday he will be, but I just thank God. He said, I just thank God. And here comes, comes the religious twang. That when I was four years old, my grandma used to bring me down to church, and I walked the aisle, and I prayed the sinner's prayer. And now I know that she told me that God now can't see my sin. He looks at me with Jesus spectacles, and there's no revoking that. Uh, it's an unconditional thing. So I just thank God that God doesn't know what I'm doing. He can't see it, because when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. Uh, that, that is a sweet deal, isn't it? <laughs> Have your chicks and your salvation, too, and the line of cocaine to boot. What a, what a deal. See, something is wrong with this picture. There's something seriously wrong with this picture. And I'm not God, and I don't ever presume to know people's hearts or anything of this sort, but, but, but uh, you can usually tell if someone is alive because there's a little bit of a pulse and a little bit of a brainwave and a little bit of breathing going on and, and uh, a sign of life. And so far as I can see, there's no sign of life here. And the Bible, he apparently didn't notice it or read it, but, but there's a lot of warnings to people who don't have any signs of life. Warnings, and they must mean something. And so, what really got me was his complete assurance that he's fine with God, despite the fact that he's got a life which, so far as I could see, was devoid of kingdom life. What is behind this view is the problem that I'm talking about here this morning. It's the same problem that was behind the question that was asked me uh, by this uh, young lady. It has to do with this. We know from the Bible that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus died as our substitute, and that we're made righteous in Christ Jesus. Absolutely true. But the way that this gets mainly thought about in the Western church is in the context of a courtroom. There's an analogy we always use, and all of us, most of us anyways, have heard it. It's a courtroom analogy of me standing before the judge, and the judge is going to condemn me, and he's just ready to lower the, 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 the you know, anvil or whatever, and, and then Jesus steps in, and he takes my punishment in this court of law so that somehow I'm now off the hook, and so even though I'm, I'm still guilty of some, in, in a sense, God declares me not guilty, and uh, uh, therefore doesn't see my sin. As long as I believe that that is true, there's this legal transaction. It's a court of law analogy. There's this legal transaction, which if I just believe it's true, then it is true, and now God doesn't see my sin. Now I'm justified. 
And that analogy communicates an important aspect of truth. I'm not denying that. The Bible sometimes talks in those terms, but as a singular model, as our main model of salvation, it is at best inadequate. And if, if, if it's the exclusive analogy we use, well, it results in some very screwed up thinking, such as I just illustrated with my truck driver friend. Notice that in this model, the courtroom model of salvation, belief is all important. Life doesn't, how you actually live isn't important. Belief is all important. If you believe the right thing, you go to heaven. If you believe the wrong thing, you go to hell. If you believe the right thing, the deal is sealed. If you don't believe it, well, then it's not sealed. So judgment day in the courtroom analogy of salvation, judgment day isn't about turning on the light of truth to, saying what is, to see what is real. Judgment day is rather, well, basically a theology quiz. What do you believe? If you believe the right stuff, well, you're okay. If you don't believe the right stuff, then you're not okay. And you can see why, I think, it doesn't take a great imagination to figure out why this view is so popular in America, especially. I mean, it's been around for a long time, but it's, it's so popular in America because it totally feeds into our consumer mindset where we're always looking for the sweetest deal at the cheapest possible price. And here we get eternal fire insurance, irrevocable for the price of a little prayer. And uh, uh, it doesn't cause any inconvenience. We don't have to adjust our lifestyle at all. We don't have to have any kind of sacrifice or anything of the sort. We can just chase the American dream like we always have. But now we've got Jesus to sweeten the pot even a little bit more. So my truck driver friend really wasn't too off in thinking I can have the chicks and the salvation and the line of Coke to boot. And uh, it's all okay. That's what this view encourages, and it so feeds into the American individualistic consumer mindset. But here's what really concerns me. That American version of salvation, the courtroom analogy, if left to itself, is, I believe, tailor-made to encourage the yeast of the Pharisees, which we just saw last week and this morning that Jesus speaks so against. In the courtroom analogy, so long as you say Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you don't have to make him Lord over any particular area of your life as long as you say it, as long as you believe it. You believe he's Lord, you don't have to actually make him Lord. So we've got tons of people, and all the research shows this, that confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but their life doesn't reflect anything about it. There's no reality to it. And that's exactly, exactly what Jesus is warning against in this passage. You don't have to suffer. There's no sacrifice. You don't have to be inconvenienced in any way. You just got to pray this prayer and then you can have this assurance. And the trouble with that is that it's massively unbiblical. Just as unbiblical as anything could be, though, if you've been conditioned with this teaching, you probably don't see that. The Bible does say that beliefs are important, doctrines are important, but it's also the case that the greater emphasis is on the need for followers of Jesus to be willing to sacrifice, willing to suffer, willing to live in love, willing to serve the poor, and other things like that. Yes, doctrines are very important, but the emphasis is on surrendering to God, really surrendering to God. The emphasis is, as we're seeing in this passage, not living a hypocritical life, being consistent on the inside and the outside, getting your words to match up with reality, uh, living a set-apart life, a different life, a countercultural life. Uh, getting free from gossip and, and greed and, and slander and living a kingdom life and, and serving the poor and things of that sort. Living the kingdom. Beliefs are important, but the emphasis is on life. And so something, something is seriously missing in the standard courtroom understanding of salvation as we find it in the West. And what we need is, I think, a rather radical reframe. At least some of us need a reframe on what it means to be saved. Here's the root of the problem, I believe. 
in the Western courtroom view of salvation, here's the root problem. We're freed from the consequences of our sin. We're freed from Gehenna. But we're not freed from our sin. Because it's a legal deal that tra- takes place outside of ourselves and doesn't itself have any implications for us so long as we believe it's true. In the courtroom analogy, the judge declares that you're not guilty. The judge decides he's not going to throw you into the garbage heap. The, the judge even declares that this trash is non-trash. But there's nothing in the courtroom analogy that says that you're anything other than trash. You still remain trash. It doesn't change you. In, in the courtroom analogy that is so common in Western theology, Jesus somehow got God to cheat the system. God says, I'm supposed to throw away the trash, uh, but because of Jesus, because of this legal deal, I won't throw away the trash. In fact, I'll pretend like it's not trash. And so he declares us to be holy, even though we're still sinners. And it's kind of this fiction, this legal fiction that goes on here. Here's an analogy. In fact, it's the analogy I just gave. Thank you. All right. All right. Here's my garbage. This is just a random bag of garbage that I got out of my uh, house yesterday. It's, it's full of junk. It's got all sorts of odds and ends. Who knows what's in there, but it's got coffee grinds. It stinks. Uh, it's got rotten food, I suspect. It might even have some dog doo-doo in there, because once in a while our dogs do a doo-doo, and we put them in there. And, and so, you know, this has no place in my house. I don't want this in my house. It stinks out my house. It has stuff that used to work, but it doesn't work any longer. And if it doesn't work any longer, what good is it? It has no place in the house. It's got to be thrown out in the garbage d- dump. So it should be thrown out in the garbage dump. But suppose I'm God. And this is us in our trash lives. And so here we are, trash, and we smell, and we're going to stink up the kingdom, uh, you know, and we're going to get thrown out into Gehenna where all trash goes. Uh, but then Jesus comes along and, and, and does this legal transaction with God. And so now I, I say, well, you know what? Because of Jesus, I'm not going to throw out this trash. Uh, because of Jesus, in fact, I'm going to pretend like this trash isn't trash. Because of Jesus, I'm going to pretend like it doesn't stink to high heaven. I'm pretending like this stuff, and it does work. In fact, because of Jesus, I'm going to put this in my living room, and it's going to have a place in my house, and I'm going to say, when I look at that, I'm going to put on certain Jesus spectacles, God says, and I'm going to see a wonderful couch that belongs in my living room. There it is. My wonderful couch belongs in my living room, and, and the trash says, oh, thank you. We're saved, even though we're still trash. Now, folks, folks, as I said, there's, there is a, you know, a, a, a point to that. But, but I submit to you that that is not the way the Bible talks about salvation. The God of the Bible doesn't pretend. The God of the Bible doesn't fake it. Uh, he just isn't into that. And here's the main point. The God of the Bible is not interested in keeping trash out of Gehenna. The God of the Bible is interested in transforming trash into this beautiful stuff that doesn't belong in Gehenna, but rather belongs in his house. He's into reality. The God of the Bible isn't interested in just keeping trash from going where trash is supposed to go. He's not interested in keeping sinners out of hell. He wants to save us from our sin. The problem with the judicial courtroom view is that, that, that it addresses the consequence of sin, but it doesn't address the sin. You know, when, when, when uh, the angel was talking to Joseph about what happened to his wife, uh, his betrothed wife, uh, here's what he says, among other things. The angel says, she will give birth to a son... And you are to give him the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, because he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. He saves us from our sins. He saves us from our trash lives. Now, because of that, we no longer are fit for Gehenna. We're fit for the kingdom. But note that the Gehenna isn't the point. Getting the trash out is the point. Because once that's out, 
Gehenna is no more of a concern. The, the reality is, folks, that our life was becoming trash because of our bondage to sin, which is anything that can separate us from God. But Jesus saves us. And he saves us, yes, by bringing about forgiveness for sins, but he also saves us by empowering us, living in us, the air we breathe. We sang about it here this morning, the Holy Spirit working inside of us. He saves us by empowering us to, to move out of sin, to begin to live for God and to live free from sin. And in that way, he's really not pretending, but he's really transforming trash into stuff that's beautiful and fit for the kingdom. Our life was becoming trash because we were in bondage to the devil, but Jesus saves us. And he does it by coming down to earth and good overcoming evil. He vanquishes the devil on the cross and the resurrection. And now he empowers us to walk free of the devil's oppression. He's transforming trash into something beautiful. That's what it means for him to save us. Our life was becoming trash because we weren't getting our life from God. We we're trying to get our life and our worth and our significance by a lot of other things. But Jesus saved us, praise God. And he saves us by reconnecting us to our one true source of life so that all of our worth and significance and need for security and lovability is all gotten from God so we're no longer walking around the world hungry trying to get it from other things. And in that way, God, through Jesus, is transforming us from the trash that we were into beautiful creatures who are fit for the kingdom of God. Our life was being destroyed as trash because we had all sorts of screwed up sub-Christian, untrustworthy pictures of God in our brain. But Jesus saves us. And the way he does it is by coming and modeling for us what God is really like. Against all of our screwed up preconceptions, he says, if you see me, you see the Father. He's the word and the image and the form of God. And in that way, uh, God is piercing through our garbage ideas of God and winning over our hearts and restoring our life with him. God is transforming the trash that we were into the beautiful kingdom people that he wants us to be. Some of us, some of us had lives that were turning into trash because we were addicted to religion. And we were thinking that we could earn God's love and needed to earn God's love by all the wonderful things that we believe and do. But Jesus comes and on the cross, he shows us that we can't earn God's love. But he also shows us on the cross that we don't need to earn God's love. Uh, he saves us from our addiction to religion by revealing to us that God loves us just as we are. He's turning trash into something that is beautiful. For some of us, our life was turning into trash because we were trying to get our life from our wealth and our wonderful possessions and our sex appeal and our talent and a multitude of other American idols. But Jesus saved us. And the way he saved us and the way he saves us is by freeing us, empowering us to see the emptiness and the futility and, and, and the, the stupidity of all those American idols by giving us the true source of life so we no longer need them. Some of us were turning into trash because we were in bondage to things like sexual immorality. And some were in bondage to greed and to gluttony. And some were in bondage to gossip and hatred and apathy towards the outcast and the poor. And some were in bondage to self-righteousness and judgmentalism. But Jesus, praise God, has saved us. And now he empowers us, forgives our sins, and empowers us to begin living a life that's in accord with God's will and is rightly related to others. And all of us, to some degree, had lives that were being trashed because of all the divisions that we've got, where we can't relate to people who are a different race than we are, or a different nationality than we are, or a different socioeconomic status than we are, or a different gender than we are. Uh, the enemy was making trash of humanity, but Jesus saved us. The Bible says that he came and he made one new humanity. 
And when he died on the cross, he tore down all those silly, stupid, frivolous walls that we've managed to set up. And so he's creating a kingdom of people, a group of people, a community of people, a one new humanity who in Christ simply don't give any significance uh, to the distinctions on race and distinctions on nationality and distinctions on gender and socioeconomic status, which empowers us to be rightly related to all people at all times. And so God is turning trash into something beautiful and it's fit for, for the kingdom. For some of us, our lives are being trashed because we put our trust in power. Power. We like to get our way because our way is righteous, right? We like to get our way. We have power over others. We, we put our trust in strong words. Some of us put our trust in physical force and being able to intimidate others. Some of us put our, our trust for the hope of the world in politics and laws and nations and military. We were being trashed, but Jesus saves us. Praise God. And he does it by, by empowering us to live in a radically different way, trusting a totally different kind of power. Uh, he empowers us to live a Calvary way of life where our confidence is no longer in flexing our muscle over others, but rather in serving others. Uh, it's towel washing kind of power where we wash the feet of, of even our enemies. And we know the hope of the world lies in that. And in, in, in doing that, in living in us and in creating that character, he's turning trash into something beautiful that is therefore fit for the kingdom. And finally, some of us were becoming trash because the world afflicted us with so many wounds and scars. We were afflicted with depression and fears and hopelessness and all sorts of emptiness and our lives were becoming trash. But Jesus, praise God, he saved us. He saved us. And what that means is not that now God pretends like those things aren't there. No, no, no. God always sees accurately. God doesn't pretend. But God invites us to be part of his life, his own life. He, and so he shares with us his joy. And he shares with us his peace. And he shares with us his life. And he shares with us his future. So now, whereas once we were fearful, there can be boldness. And while once we were in despair, now there can be joy. And where once there was anxiety, now there can be peace. And a multitude of other things called the fruit of the Spirit. But God in that way, filling us with his spirit, is, is transforming our trash lives into beautiful lives. God is in the process of transforming us who were once fit only for Gehenna. He's saving us by making us fit for the kingdom. He's bringing wholeness into our lives. He's restoring us. He's restoring our humanity. He's conforming us to the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. He's making us beautiful reflections of himself. He's making us fit for the kingdom instead of Gehenna. That's what salvation is all about, folks. That's salvation from a biblical perspective. To focus exclusively on a legal transaction that cancels Gehenna completely misses the point. It certainly misses all the good stuff. That's like saying the point of going to high school is to find a legal loophole so you don't flunk your senior year. Really, is that the point of going to high school? No, the point of going to high school is to learn, to really learn, and to really become a certain kind of person that's ready to meet the world. That's the point. And if you do that, you know what? As a sort of footnote, you will uh, manage to not flunk uh, your senior year in high school. But to go into it saying, uh, the goal here is to find a loophole to not flunk your senior year in high school, what's going to happen is, if that's your goal, you're not going to learn the way you're supposed to learn. You're not going to grow the way you're supposed to grow, and high school won't be doing what high school is supposed to do. So it is with salvation, folks. The point of salvation is not to, get, to find a loophole, a way for trash to escape being thrown into Gehenna where trash belongs. The point is to grow out of our trash. The point is to become a person fit for the kingdom rather than Gehenna. The point is that God transforms trash into stuff, beautiful stuff, beautiful people, beautiful creatures who are reflect his character and are fit for the kingdom. And that is salvation. 
That is salvation. That's the biblical view of salvation. It's holistic. It's broad. It's beautiful. It encompasses everything. See, if you reframe things that way, if you re- reframe things that way, it really, it really affects your whole theology on a lot of other things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to very briefly touch on five things that it, that it reframes. Uh, just so you know that when we talk about these things, here's what we mean, because there's a lot of talk out there that means something different. But for example, number one, this is what it means to belong to the kingdom. We always talk about the kingdom because Jesus always talked about the kingdom. What it means to belong to the kingdom, it's not a legal fiction thing. It's not a pretend thing. God didn't find a way to cheat the system and now act like we're kingdom people, even though we're not. The kingdom is about reality because God's always about reality. And the reality it's about is becoming a domain over which God is king. That's what the word kingdom means. It's a real thing. It's not a pretend thing. God wants to reign over our life in fact, not just pretend, not just theoretically. And as God reigns over our life as king, and we learn to submit more and more to him, he takes the trash out of our life. So now our character comes to line up with our pledge of faith in him, and we're made into kingdom people. Secondly, this is what it means to have faith. This is what it means in a biblical context to have faith. Our culture, because of the courtroom analogy, tends to think faith is mere belief. I I, I believe that that transaction happened. That is not the biblical concept of faith. The biblical concept of faith, like most concepts in the Bible, needs to be understood in a covenantal context, like a marriage context. And to have faith in a marriage context, a covenant context, is to trust, put your trust that the other person will be a faithful covenant partner, but it's also a pledge that you will be a faithful covenant partner. You're having faith in the covenant. This covenant's going to work. Why? Because I trust you and you trust me. That's, that, that's faith in the covenant context. It's not mere belief. That'd be like saying getting married is a matter of believing that your wife exists. That's not quite a marriage. No, no, it's, it's, it, it's, it's about having faith in the marriage and being faithful in the marriage. When you, think, when, you, when, you, when you think kingdom, don't think courtroom, think marriage. When you think faith, when you think through the Bible, our relation with God, don't think courtroom, think marriage, covenant. That's why, from a biblical perspective, to have faith absolutely has consequences on your behavior. It can't help but have consequences on your behavior. That's why James says that faith without works is dead. It's dead. It's useless. Faith without works is mere belief. And even the demons believe. It doesn't do them a bit of good. Faith goes way beyond belief. Now, it's not that we're earning anything. This isn't about works. We're not impressing God. We're not earning anything. Okay, this isn't salvation by works. This is salvation by faith. But genuine faith has an implication on your behavior because you're entering into a covenant. Number three, have you ever noticed that the Bible talks about salvation quite different than many Americans do? The Bible talks about salvation in three tenses, past, present, and future. So Paul says, for example, in Ephesians 2, God made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Past tense. So you have been saved. When you surrendered your life to Christ, you were saved. Past tense. But it also talks about salvation in the present tense. Did you ever notice that? For example, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are in the process of perishing, it's, it's foolishness. But to us who are in the process of being saved, that's an interesting thing. We Americans don't talk like that very much. We always say, are you saved? We don't say, are you in the process of being saved? But the Bible does. 
Then the Bible also talks about salvation in the future tense, uh, Romans chapter 5. For if while you were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Future tense. I have been saved, I'm being saved, I shall be saved. Now, the reason we don't talk that way very much in, in American Protestant circles especially is because we have a courtroom analogy that sort of governs our whole thinking about salvation. And the courtroom analogy, it makes no sense to talk that way. You either signed the deal or you didn't. It's a legal transaction. But see, if you think in terms of um, uh, uh, covenant, it makes perfect sense. I was married. I am being married. I shall be married. It's a relationship that occurs over time. Uh, I was saved when I first surrendered my life to Christ because now God says, okay, good. Now I got something to work with. I can plant my mustard seed kingdom in him. I can start taking the garbage out. But I'm also being saved because garbage is still being taken out. And I shall be saved because when all the garbage is taken out, then the light of truth will come on and it will be clear that I am in fact fit for the kingdom. God has made me fit for the kingdom. All three tenses apply. This is also true, and this brings me to point number four, of the term justification. Justification. We are, the word means declared righteous. We are declared righteous. Now, in the courtroom analogy, that de being declared righteous is sort of a, it's a legal thing. It, it applies legally, but it doesn't affect you really. You're not really righteous. You're just declared righteous. And so people think, well, the, the, you know, there's a split here. As long as God declares me righteous, he apparently has got bad eyesight so he can't see my sin. Good, good for me. I submit to you that that is just not the way the Bible talks and thinks and speaks about this reality of being justified. Look at God does declare us to be righteous, but God doesn't pretend he doesn't cheat at the game and he doesn't have bad eyesight. When God declares you righteous, it's because... You're righteous. There's no pretending going on. Look at it, think about it this way. When God talks, reality occurs. He creates. When God says, let there be light, there's light. When God says, let there be dry land, there's dry land. When God says, let there be righteousness, because a heart has yielded to him, there's righteousness. That's not a pretend thing. That's a real thing. Now, here's the thing. When God said, let there be light, there's automatically light, nothing but light, because there's nothing to resist the light. But when God said, let Greg Boyd be righteous... There's something that resists it, fights back, pushes back. It's the old Greg Boyd. It's the trash Greg Boyd. And now my whole life is about letting the truth of who I am because of what God's doing in my life, has done, is doing, will do in my life, letting the truth of that push out the garbage, taking out the garbage so that the reality of who God says I am and my actual character and thought process are in harmony with one another. There's no hypocrisy there. Our job is to yield to what God is doing to get, out, to get the trash out of our life so that we, in fact, are kingdom people. Paul puts it in, in terms of the old self, new self. For example, he says in Ephesians chapter 4, you were taught with regard to your former trash way of life, and here's my little paraphrase, your former trash way of life, to put off your old trash self. Take out the garbage, which is being corrupted by its deceitful trash desires. And you were taught to be made new in the attitude of your kingdom minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Know who you are in Christ. And to put on the new kingdom self, created, it's already created, it was spoken into existence, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Not a pretend righteousness and holiness, not God's bad eyesight righteousness and holiness, true righteousness and holiness. What Paul is saying is this, take out the trash. It's not who you really are. 
You have been justified. You are being justified. You shall be justified. So get rid of all the trash that disagrees with that. Because in fact, you are a holy creature in Christ Jesus. You are righteous in Christ Jesus. You are a child of God in Christ Jesus. And anything that doesn't agree with that is a bunch of trash. Take it out. Take it out. Get rid of that trash thinking process. Get rid of those trash emotions, that trashy attitude that you got, that trashy behavior that you, that you have. Quit acting and thinking and feeling like trash and manifest your new self in Christ Jesus. It's who you truly are. Not pre- no, no pretending here. God does see the trash. He just knows that it's not who you really are. The question is, will you agree with him? And to the extent that we agree with him, he reigns over us. That's kingdom. To the extent that he doesn't, that we don't agree with him, he's not reigning over us. That's not kingdom. And the job is to make every fiber of our being a kingdom fiber, fiber, a fiber over which he reigns. And all this leads to my fifth point, and I close with this. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, we need to continually surrender to Christ. You know, uh, people have asked, how come I don't have people raise their hands in the church anymore at the end of the service to commit their life to Christ? And um, that may change in the future, but right now we're in a season where we really felt led not to do that. And it's because of this point I'm talking about right now. Because of this legal courtroom model of, of, of salvation that's so pervasive, people's default setting is to think that when they raise their hand, no matter what I say, they still walk away with this. If I raise my hand and pray this prayer, well, then that magically seals this legal transaction, and I can just go about my life as it was before. But it's worse. Because now they walk out of here with a, some kind of assurance that they're fit to go to heaven when nothing has changed. And so I haven't done them a service by sending them out the door with a false assurance. I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, the reality is this. See, in the courtroom analogy, you believe it, and that seals the deal, and now you can forget about God the rest of your life. Or you maybe go to church on Easter and Christmas and pray once in a while when you're in trouble, but otherwise it has no implications for your life. That's not a relationship. That's not a marriage. Look at, think about it this way. When I got married, when I pledged my life to my wife, My pledge of life was not the life that I pledged. The life that I pledged was the life I've lived every moment after I made that pledge. The quality of my marriage isn't, in fact, the fact of my marriage isn't determined by the fact that I once upon a time pledged my life to my wife. The quality of my marriage and the fact of my marriage is determined by the fact that now I'm living the life that I pledged to give her. So the question is not, did I pledge my life 29 years ago? But am I pledging my life now? Am I living out that pledge? Am I surrendering this moment to her? Am I, am I continuing to abide in this relationship? The only, re, the only life I have to give my wife is the life I'm living right now. The past is gone. The future is not here. I'm in the now. So the question is, is, am I pledging it to her now? Am I living out that pledge? It's the same thing in our relationship with Christ. It's wonderful that once upon a time you surrendered your life to Christ and you pledged your life to Christ. That was a good start. But the content of that commitment is determined by what you do with your life. The real life that you live moment by moment by moment. And so the important question is not did you surrender your life to Christ 18 years ago or 80 years ago. Are you surrendering your life to Christ right now? Because the only life you have to surrender is the one you're living this moment. And now this moment. And now this moment. So what it means is that... We need to learn to cultivate a surrendered life. Jesus wants to be Lord of our life. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. But that's not a magical, pretend, fictional thing. He wants to be Lord of our life, and that means Lord of this moment, the whole moment, this now. 
because the only life I've got is this one right here and right now. That's what it means to, to, to uh, live in reality. Reality is always in the now. And so, folks, we've got to cultivate really a surrendered awareness of God's presence moment by moment in our life and turning over our mornings, afternoons, and evenings to him, living in this surrendered life. Because as we do that, we're making this moment and now this moment a kingdom moment, a moment over which God reigns. And as we do that, he pumps his kingdom life into our life and he takes out the trash. And now our lives begin to be changed. You find as you walk with God moment by moment, as you strive to do that, it's, it's, a, it's a habit, it's a hard habit to cultivate. Read Brother Lawrence's Practicing the Presence of God for a good start on this. But as you do that, your life changes. It just changes. It just, uh, you, you gradually take on kingdom, kingdom characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit. You look at people different. You look at yourself different. You have different attitudes. Your, at, your, 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 your tastes change. What you used to find funny is not funny anymore, but other things are funny. You just, you're, you're growing to be a person who's fit for the kingdom. That's what it is to really surrender life to God. This moment and now this moment. And this is the meaning, folks, of salvation. This is the meaning of the kingdom. This is the meaning of faith. This is the meaning of justification. This is the meaning of living in real Christianity, where Jesus is really Lord and you're really a follower instead of this pretend courtroom fictional magical stuff. So let's spend one moment doing this. Uh, Holy Spirit, will you right now just uh, remind us that you're present here. Take a breath and re- re- realize that the Holy Spirit's closer to you, to you than that breath and you need him more than that breath. And right now, this moment, which is the only reality you've got, Will you surrender it to him? Surrender your life to Christ. And the minute your heart says yes to that, you're making this a kingdom moment. And can you maintain that attitude all the while I'm talking now? Surrendered to him. Surrender that moment. This may be the first time you've ever done that. Good. Welcome to the kingdom. Maybe that you... Did that 80 years ago. Fine. This is what's real. Surrender now, in this moment. As you do that, you might notice when you surrender, you turn the light on, the light of truth comes on, you might immediately notice you got some trash that doesn't belong in the kingdom. Don't get mad at the trash. Don't hate the trash. Don't judge the trash because that's just more trash. (laughs) You can't get rid of trash by piling on more trash. Hating yourself for all the garbage in your life isn't going to do any good. No, all you do is just say, Lord, when I surrender myself over to you, I surrender the garbage. Will you take this out? Will you just take this out and turn it over to him? He's a great garbage collector. Just send that to hell, Gehenna. I don't need that anymore. Just surrender it over to him. You, you can't do that on your own, but let him take it from you. Now, it may be the case, Holy Spirit, keep working in our lives. It may be the case that you don't want to surrender your trash because you've always sat on that trash like it was a couch. You always thought it belonged in your house. You actually like the smell of that trash. In fact, you eat that trash for breakfast. You're a trasher and you like it and you can't say how you're going to do life without that trash. Okay, turn the light of truth on. If that's what's true, then be true. Just be, surrender that whole thing over to God. And just say, God, I still want this, but I, I want to not want it. And so will you take my wants and change my desires and change my trashy ways. And, and as you surrender moment by moment, it may not be right this instant, but you'll, what you'll find is that the garbage really does start to smell. 
and it doesn't taste so good after a while. And you really begin to see that you're way above this. You're putting on your new self. You're putting off that old trash self. It's like, what was I ever thinking when I invited this into my house? And then you get rid of it. And this is how God grows us. He takes the garbage out. Holy Spirit, will you just be purging us and taking the trash out and showing us who we really are in Christ Jesus? Help us to live and walk and feel and think and move in the reality of what you've spoken into our life about who we truly are. God, free us from the pretend magical courtroom kind of Christianity that's so pervasive in this culture looking for the cheap deal and the loopholes, concerned only about not flunking our senior year in high school. Lord, free us from that mindset to be real people with a real Savior who really surrender our life, who really do move into the kingdom, who move beyond the facade of false belief, who are rooted out, rooting out of their lives the yeast of the Pharisees and who are coming to have our outside and our inside in harmony with one another. People who really are being made fit for the kingdom. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you, God, for being in the process of saving us. Thank you, God, because we know that we shall be saved. You that have begun a good work, see it through to the end. We trust you for that. In Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed with that said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. The altar's open. If you want to come forward for prayer for any means, come on down, get prayer. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.